Climbing Gold is a production of Duct Tape and Beer, with support from the North Face. Never stop exploring. Dr. Squatch, get dirty, stay clean. Chorus, explore perfection. An element, restoring health through hydration. Hey everyone, Elizabeth Nakano, senior producer, back with another bonus episode. In season one, we introduced Armando Menical, the guy who helped save climbing in America. If you haven't listened yet, look for episode eight. It's called Give and Take. During his interview, Armando shared this story that we loved, but we couldn't fit it into the episode, so we're bringing it to you now. It's about how he helped change the climbing scene in another country. I was born in Miami. Parents are from Cuba. My family goes back there a long time. When I was a little boy, my mother would take me summers to Havana to stay with the family. But then, you know, as I got active and friends in junior high and high school, I went less and less. And so the last time was, uh, you know, when I was a teenager. Armando went on to establish a law career, found the Access Fund, and helped save many beloved climbing sites from being closed forever. Then, in 1998, he decided to reconnect with his Cuban heritage. He flew from his home in Wyoming to the island for a visit. It had been 40 years since he had last set foot in the country. My uh, Lonely Planet guidebook described this valley of Vinales as a Yosemite-like valley in Cuba. And uh, I found that hard to believe. But having climbed in the valley for 25 years, I said, well, I can't pass that up. I got to go look at it. So I went there and there was all these limestone walls there. Vinales Valley is near the western end of Cuba. It's a national park and a UNESCO World Heritage Site. And it has these steep limestone crags that reach heights of close to a thousand feet. With the help of some local farmers and their machetes, Armando chopped through the undergrowth to get a better look at some of them. The wheels in his head were spinning. And so uh, I came back two or three months later with a group of uh, friends from Colorado. George Braxick, the founder of uh, Rocket Ice Magazine, Craig Lubin, very instrumental in helping me learn about sport climbing and how you put up routes and how you involve the local climbing community. Uh, even though I was the one with the Cuban heritage uh, uh, Craig was the one that had the ideas and the and the links and brought gear at first for the Cubans without even telling the rest of us what we were doing. But from the very beginning, we did try to locate and include Cubans in our climbing there. This started in 1999. Craig and I both fell in love with Cuba. I think he and I returned three times that first year, a couple times second year. Here I was at about 60. I became a sport climber. <laughs> putting up routes. Was that really the first time you really got into sport climbing? Oh, yeah. I mean, I'd, I'd done a little sport climbing, you know, uh, Owens River Gorge and other places like that. But I would never have said that I was a sport climber. I would always be in those places, you know, doing the easiest climbs. <laughs> At the time all of this was happening, the relationship between Cuba and the U.S. was basically non-existent. During the Cold War, the U.S. instituted an embargo against Cuba and cut diplomatic ties. And things hadn't gotten much better by 1999. 
The American climbers with Armando were putting up routes at a time that most Americans were forbidden from traveling to the country. And they were doing that while Fidel Castro was in power. His authoritarian regime was not known for tolerating challenges, real or perceived. Is climbing illegal in Vinales now? Or I know it has been at certain points. Where's it at now? Well, you know, in Cuba, the government is accustomed to controlling everything. The sports apparatus did not support and like any activity that it didn't create and control. And from the beginning, that's what climbing was. Our first troubles started in 2003. And they would never outright say it's banned. They would say, well, it's not authorized. And I'd say, okay, well, can I get authorization for it? And they'd say, well, no, you have to wait till we decide to authorize it. And then the government would forget about us for several years. That was sort of the pattern that went on. But there have been a, a few incidents over the years where they'll decide that climbing is not authorized and you shouldn't be climbing. And they'll try to enforce it by making climbers stop climbing and move along. You know, they'll just tell them, move along. Despite the government's lack of clarity, Vinales developed into a popular climbing destination. Armando helped Cubans get into the sport by facilitating donations of climbing gear and equipment. The donation program is still running today because it remains hard for Cuban climbers to get what they need. In the years immediately following that group trip to Vinales, Armando returned to the country frequently. He went to climb, of course, but he also went for another reason. He'd met and fallen in love with a local woman named Laura. In 2005, just as they were about to get married, the Cuban government surprised them. They banned me. from from Cuba, and they wouldn't let me come back in. I still don't know to this day what act or acts I did (laughs) that caused me to be inadmissible. I probably have a, a list of 10 things. I knew all the time that I was in Cuba that I was being watched by the government. I know they had gone into my room and taken my climbing notes and photographed them. And I know it because subsequently Cuban climbers were detained by the government and shown photocopies of my climbing notes and photographs where they were asking the Cubans, what is this written here? You know, 7B plus, what does that mean? thinking it was some kind of code when it was climbing grades of new routes that we'd done. Because <laughs> I had been keeping a log of all the new, of all the routes, uh, working toward eventually doing a, a guidebook. And they were even shown photos of me out in the countryside, you know, when I'd be out scouting for routes or actually climbing. But I never somehow expected that, that it was going to lead to being uh, inadmissible. Well, the first time it happened, September 25, 2005, no surprise, I remember the date. At that time, I was spending almost every fall, two or three months, and every spring, two or three months in Cuba. So I showed up, and uh, I not only had all our documentation for Laura and me to get married, I I had her wedding dress, (laughs) uh, white shoes. Uh, and lots of things for our little house that we built the previous spring. 
in Cuba. And when I uh, was in uh, the line in, in immigration, enter the country, when I went up to the booth, the woman looked at the screen for a while, had me confirm my name, wanted to know if I had any other identification other than my passport. It seemed a little strange. And so I showed her my driver's license. I think she was just making sure that she had the right guy. And then she told me to step out of the line. And then an official came and got me and walked me uh, to some other part of the room. He just said that you're inadmissible and you cannot enter the country. And the guy could not tell me a single thing that I'd done. He said, sorry, we don't know. You're going to fly back on the, on the plane you came in. Unfortunately, the plane was going to overnight in Havana. So Laura, see, Laura and I couldn't even communicate. She's, you know, you know, most international airports are like, she's on the other side, you know, where you exit after going through immigration and customs. And she stays there all night while I'm inside sleeping on the floor under guard until four or five in the morning. Kind of an embarrassing thing being walked by guards onto a plane. <laughs> They don't even give me back my own passport. They give it to the pilot and say, after you take off, you can give them this. <laughs> I don't know what, I, what they thought I was going to do with the passport. And only then when I get flown back out of the country to Cancun, when I can get to a phone or about 10 or you know, nine or 10 in the morning, am I able to tell her what happened? So yeah, it was, uh, it was devastating to say the least, you know. I flew back home. I got to Jackson, uh, I think the next day. And uh, I did what I almost always do. <laughs> Frustration. I don't know what to do. I I took off on a six hour run <laughs> traversing the Tetons <laughs> in the mountains just to work hard and hurt and think <laughs> what had just happened. And unfortunately, that scene was repeated Two more times. Now, I wrote many letters, Laura did in Cuba, trying to get me back in. None of them ever got answered. She had many meetings with officials. They tell her stories. Even took five years to get Laura, my wife, out. And then back in 2016, I don't know why, they finally let me back in. One of the most common conversations <laughs> that my wife and I still have now when we're in Cuba, she says, well, be careful. You better not do anything, you know, that got you in trouble before. And, and I always say, but, but we don't know what got me in trouble before. So how do I know what not to do? <laughs> Alex and I will be back next week with more new episodes. For photos and extra glimpses into the stories we featured on the show, follow us on Instagram at Climbing Goal. This bonus episode was written and edited by Elizabeth Lucano, with additional editing and mixing by Cordelia Zars, who also supplied the music. Additional tracks by Brennan O'Connell. Climbing Gold is a production of Duct Tape Then Beer. Thanks for listening. <laughs>